We want to say thank you for listening. So our sponsors have given some great deals in this episode. Check these out. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Axness, because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. And SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Access PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. And SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They are here to bring your agency up to date with the most current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome. With a certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has also partnered with Petzl to assist with personal protective equipment and the highly specific Lazard. SR3 also goes beyond the helicopter world as they provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. Coming up next, we have a pilot coming on. And not just any pilot, this guy in particular, he served in four of our U.S. military branch services and flown in three of them. It's awesome. So his stories, yeah, they don't disappoint. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. Yonel Durellis. My name is Jason Quinn. 
I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Uh, I've got a guy with me today, which I'm, I'm really excited about because you've been in a whole bunch of services and flown in a whole bunch of services. It's, it's a, you, you are another first, my friend. I, I'm loving it. Yanel Dorellis. Did I get that one? You got it. You got it. You know what? We're going to go with Yogi because that's what everybody knows you as. That's what everybody calls you at. Yogi. What's up, Yogi? Welcome to the show, brother. Welcome. Happy to be here, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. Heck yeah. So you and I, uh, we were emailing back and forth a little bit. And, and one of the things that sparked my interest, you're like, man, I got a story for you. And it was like, that was it. And I was like, oh, oh, do tell. <laughs> so puff, here we are. But before we get into some of that stuff, um, yeah, if you don't mind, give us a little background about you and how you came into working in four of these services and flying in three of them. Well, uh, yeah, I was born and raised in New York City, as I'm sure you and your uh, listeners could tell immediately. Um, Go Boston! I, I was, I was one of the <laughs> still winningest team in baseball, even after getting crushed by the Mets. The record, whatever. But um, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, like a lot of people you hear on these podcasts and and in books and you know in the media, you know, I always wanted to be a pilot. You know, some of these uh, SEALs are like, I always wanted to be a SEAL or whatever. I always wanted to be a pilot. Can't tell you when I thought about flying, but as far back as I could remember, I always wanted to, to fly and specifically fly in the military. And, you know, with the beauty of social media and things, I've reconnected with friends from as far back as elementary school, plus the guys I grew up with and I'm still friends with. And everybody remembers me sitting in the back of class drawing epic World War II battles by the time I was 10, I knew every aircraft on both sides from World War II. I'm still a World War II buff. Um, Love it. And then um, as I got a little older, I started learning about different branches of the military. And, and I know this is cliche, but I saw the Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne. And uh, at, at, there's the part at the end of the movie, you know, basically the end where they're Walking down the hill, the smoke, cue the Marine Corps him. I was hooked, man. I was like, boom, that's it for me. Let's you know, go Marine Corps. A, yeah, you know, and that I learned you could be a Marine officer and and things. So that was kind of my focus. And you know, as I grew up and and went through life, that was still my focus. I got sidetracked in the sense that I was not a good kid. I got in some trouble. You know, didn't always do the right thing, but sort of because that was my goal, it kept me from really making some pretty serious mistakes. But uh, you know, it's still like it was a little bit of a road for me. Like, even though I was in college, the Marine Corps has uh, some specific officer programs. And, uh, you know, I went into to um, to have a meeting and, you know, express my interest and blah, blah, blah. And I, I walked in and there was this major there and he, he'd he been a Mustang. And got to remember, this is um, uh, 1980, you know, so all these senior guys or mid-level guys, they'd all fought in Vietnam, you know, um, yeah. So I walk in there, I, honestly, I think I, I might've been in a wife beat, you know, cause I, I had no sense of, you know, <laughs> trying to make a good impression or anything. I, I, you think my accent is bad now, it was worse then. 
you know, I had no sense of vocabulary, you know, even though I was in college, I still was a knucklehead, you know, and um, he basically threw me out. You know, he's, he's like, listen, you're not the type of guy who's going to be an officer. You know, we're looking for a specific type of guy. And he said, you know, I suggest you either enlist in the Marine Corps, which I think would be really good for you, or come back in a year and know how to make an impression that'll make me think you're worthy of this program. Wow, so, like, man, that's things, deep, dude. Yeah, so like a lot of things in life, you think it's the worst thing in the world, looking back, you know, 30 odd years was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because from that point on, I was like, I didn't want to enlist in the Marine Corps because I didn't want to interrupt college or, or anything. So I, and you know, it's before the internet, I learned how to interview. I learned how to make an impression. I learned, you know, the importance of making a good first impression. I worked on my vocabulary, on my diction, on the way I spoke a little bit, uh, the way I dressed, all that stuff. And I had to do that research by myself, you know, through either friends of the family, uh, people I knew who were in business. I, I literally asked people I knew who ran businesses, friends, parents, things. How do I do this? They were kind enough to sit down and explain things to me. And a year later, I walked in that that officer selection office and um, was accepted in the Marine Corps officer program, the platoon leaders class program. And, um, you know, fast forward, I successfully completed OCS. I did make another stupid mistake. Uh, the Marine Corps still has this platoon leaders, platoon leaders class program today. And it's really an awesome program because it allows you to go to officer candidate school during the summer then go back to school, you'll get paid <clears throat> like reserve E5 money, but you really don't have any obligations other than to finish school and, you know, maybe keep your hair a little shorter. You don't have to wear a uniform, <laughs> you don't have to do anything. Now, you can do it two six weeks or one 10 week program, right? It may have changed the timing, but that's when it was back then. I did the two six weeks, which is arguably one of the dumbest things a human being could do. Because it's basically like going to boot camp twice, right? You, you know, for example, six of us started out that first summer. Only two of us went back the next summer. And I was so freaked out about going back. But I couldn't quit because I talked so much shit about being a Marine to everybody that I couldn't quit. But I remember the day before going back for that second summer, I was on the back of my friend's motorcycle. I remember exactly we stopped at the corner of 14th Street and uh, Madison Avenue. We were at a light. I leaned over and threw up because I was just so honestly in a panic about going back, you know. And, uh, <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, but, but I did it and I completed. I got my commission in the Marine Corps uh, 1984 when I graduated school. Uh, went to what's called TBS, where all new Marine lieutenants go, the basic school where you basically learn uh, small unit tactics up to the platoon level. And then also all the administrivia that you're going to need to be an officer in the military, specifically the Marine Corps, fitness reports, administration, all the things that you're going to deal with. And then at the end of that, uh, um, those of us on what's called an air contract would have gone to flight school and then the, uh, everyone else would have gone to their various different MOSs. Well, about we just come back from the three day war, which is sort of a culminating event, similar to the crucible, which is what the Marine Corps has now. And they call this into this auditorium. It's called O'Bannon Hall after Presley O'Bannon, one of the first famous Marine officers. And they basically got a paraphrase and said, guys, it sucks to be you. 
We have too many pilots. Uh, so uh, those of you who are in an air contract, you can either drop your air contract voluntarily. We'll give you any MOS you want. Uh, those of you who don't wish to do that, we're kind of going to stick you where we need you for 18 to 24 months till this pipeline sort of smooths out. Uh, another long story short, one of my fellow lieutenants, his father was a Navy Admiral, worked in NAVAIR. As you know, NAVAIR incorporates Naval Aviation, Marine Aviation, Coast Guard Aviation, right? So oh, yes. he walks over to his counterpart in the Marine Corps, WTF. The guy tells him, he goes, you know what? We're short pilots. You think some of these Marine lieutenants would like to switch over and be Navy ensigns? So uh, about three, four months of paperwork, blah, blah, blah. You know, I graduated the basic school. So for me, the decision was, a, I, I really liked the Marine Corps. And, and I, it's still honestly a regret to this day that I wasn't able to kind of uh, serve in the Marine Corps as an aviator and, and stuff like that. But I was also worried about my eyes going back because you would have to take all the physical again and, and everything. So, I, you know, um, and my pa I didn't have a lot of patience then. So um, when they offered us a chance to swap to the Navy, uh, about 150 of us took that, right? And I, I decided wow. to go with that. So um, it took about three three months or so for the paperwork to swing. And then one day they handed me my DD-214 for the Marine Corps, sidestep over, sworn in the ensign, as an ensign in the Navy, let my hair grow a little bit, swapped uniforms, and was down in Pensacola about a week and a half later. And um, I ended up flying CH-53Es in the Navy, was stationed in the Philippines for a couple of years, then in Norfolk, um, where I met my wife. Um, and then in 91, right after the first Gulf War, I kind of thought I wanted to get out, do some other things. You know, I had a new baby, plus my stepdaughter, who's now my daughter that I since adopted. Um, awesome. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I went into the corporate world and honestly, I, I knew I'd made a mistake right away. You know, my first corporate job lasted about seven, eight months. I hated it. Um, then I started working in the theater business in New York City in the box office, which is a union job. It's a good job. It, it, it seems like it wouldn't be, but it's a really, really great job. And um, started working in that business and I missed flying really bad. And um, really, really bad. Right. I know and, the feeling. And uh, put out paperwork to all the Guard and Reserve units in the tri-state area, right? New York, Navy Reserves, Marine Reserves, everybody. And uh, the Army Guard came through first. So I flew as a warrant officer, went from 03 to W2, which was kind of cool. And um, flew as a warrant officer in the Army Guard for about five years and uh, flew old H model Hueys, which was awesome. We didn't do anything serious there. So every drill meeting was like, we had all these old warrant officers have been in Vietnam and stuff. And the Lieutenant platoon commander would brief us on some training flight. He'd leave in the W4 and go, we're not doing that. We're going to Atlantic city. I know a good Chinese place down there. <laughs> we fly four ship formation to Atlantic city, eat at this Chinese buffet or something. And just have a blast. And, and it really was a lot of fun. I'm still friends with a lot of the guys I flew with down there. And um, it was it was fun. And it was cool because these guys had stories. These were amazing pilots, you know, and, and it was it was cool. And I, I learned a lot. And then um, also on Long Island is uh, the 101st, Res 101st Rescue Wing, 103rd Rescue Wing, which is part of the New York Air National Guard, you know, of 
uh, you know, um, I guess everybody knows them from the perfect storm and they yep. did combat search and rescue. And I was always interested in that. You know, I was always interested in rescue. I had a, unsuccessfully applied for the direct commission aviation program in the Coast Guard. Um, I did well, but they had a guy, you know, it was just, there was three or four of us. And the one guy they picked just obviously had some better qualifications than the other. But um, so Maybe I was- Maybe because you're from New York. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, no, but, no, um, no. <laughs> but, and, but I always was in rescue. So I applied for that unit was pretty competitive, but somehow they took me, which I'm still shot about to this day. And I, I was in that unit and I was in that unit for about two years, um, was a great unit, uh, was doing everything kind of in unit training. So obviously it was a little slow. Then they, they did get a schoolhouse slot for me at Kirtland Air Force Base. I went out there, was in the schoolhouse and lo and behold, the, uh, the assignments guy is there visiting to give assignments and talk to everybody. And so, and, um, and all the other active duty pilots, they're like, Hey man, that active duty is really short pilots right now. You should see if, if you can come on active duty. So I cornered the guy in the hallway. I'm like, Hey, can I come on active duty? And he's like, uh, did your unit pay for you to go to flight school? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm an inner service transfer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's my background. He goes, then yeah, if, if you apply and your commander approves it or the wing approves it, I'll bring you on board for two years. So I did that. Um, the unit was really cool about it because I wasn't I think they wouldn't have been cool if I was like, hey, I want to go to the, this unit to fly fighters or something. Yeah. But I was just literally the same mission, just wanted to go on active duty. I just thought it was the better way to go. So I came on active duty with, I think, two or three year orders. Um, but. The timing, both good and bad, on the good part of the timing, I was eligible for the bonus based on my previous years of service and everything. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll take this bonus and I'll stay at least to 10 years and then I'll play it by ear. Bad part is my timing grade as an 03 was such that I was in the Air Force three months when I was up for promotion to major and I didn't have any of their pedigree. You know, the, the, you know, every oh, yeah. pedigree uh, schools and things that I hadn't gone to. So I was actually passed over for major, which isn't a cool thing, but they were so short. No, real, real quick side note on that is and I, I don't know if all services are the same. I know the Coast Guard, like you can only be passed over twice uh, as a promotion. And if you if you get passed over twice, they say, thank yes. you. Thanks for playing. Peace out. You're done with your You're military exactly career. Right. But again, my timing was a little better that time. The Air Force was so short pilots that they said they were willing to retain captains to 20 years. And I signed wow. something that said I would stay a captain to 20 years. And honestly, I didn't care. You know, with the bonus and everything, I was making as much as a major, right? Yeah. And uh, I wasn't, you know, I was never a career-minded guy. And I'm not minimizing it, but I didn't care. I didn't care as much as I probably should have, to be frank. You know, I was like, yeah. I'll just stay flying. I never thought the idea of a 40-something-year-old captain was a little weird to people. I didn't care. I was in better shape than a lot of the dudes anyway, so it didn't matter. But, you know, and because we had so many inter-service transfers from the Army, we had a lot of warrants who were like 40-year-old lieutenants. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. guys who were stopped in the exchange wearing their uniform because they had a shitload of ribbons up to here and they were only lieutenants <laughs> and they had the colonels going well where does the lieutenant get all those ribbons 
And the guy's like, well, sir, I was an army pilot. I've been to Panama, desert storm that, you know, and so, um, it, it was, well, if you're from funny. New York, you, if you're from New York, you look at it and be like, don't worry about it. Yeah. But you know, it was just <laughs> Come on, man. It's good. It's true. it's true. But it was, it was kind of funny. So, you know, that happened. And then honestly, the war came along, which as weird as that sound was the best thing that ever happened to me career wise, just because of what our units did and what we did. And then eventually, because of some of the things I got to do, I did get promoted to major and I was able to finish out my career as a major. But, you know, that's how I ended up just, you know, timing, good or bad, just ended up sort of shaping my career. And as as odd as, odd as it sounds, Yes, it prevented me from maybe going higher in rank, but I don't regret anything. And it turned out to be a really cool career because at the end of the day, I'm pretty unique. And I can say I've served in four branches of the military and I've flown helicopters in three. And I'm really proud of the fact that I have the aviator, all three aviator wings, military aviator wings that the United States gives out. You know, I have naval aviator wings, which I'm really proud of because I earned those. I have my Army aviator wings, my Air Force pilot wings which all, you know, I'm actually going to get all three tattooed on my arm here soon. And, um, you know, oh, that's it, awesome. It, it means a lot to me. And, I, and I'm very proud of that fact, you know, and I joke, I've had a very interesting and highly undistinguished military career, but it was great. It was fun. I don't know that I trade anything, you know, um, it, it was fun and just, just honestly. And again, it's very, you know, during this interview, I'll say a lot of cliche things, but they're true. I got to serve with the coolest, most amazing people, which is what made it so great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unreal when you get around guys with either a like-minded mindset or just guys you get along with so well, and you end up going into, I'm going to call it battle for you. Um, for me, it was, you know, out in the dark and stormy nights, it's you, you yeah, get the, it. The costumes, the, the costumes may be different, but we, we are all cut from the same cloth. I believe, you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Because having served in, in the different branches of the service, I can interchange. I can think of the, the badasses or the great people I served with, and it really wouldn't matter what uniform they were wearing. They were just the kind of people that you wanted to go into a tough situation with, and you could count on them. And they were just awesome people. You had a lot of laughs with them. You had fun with them. you know. And if you put them all in the same room, they'll bust each other's chops about their respective services, but they'd all live and die. They die for each other and they'd all get along. It, it's, yeah. it's just, you know, it is, I've learned this, that certain people are cut from a cloth for certain things. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. I think it's a gene because I don't come from a military background at all. I grew up with a single mom. My mom was your typical Jewish mom. She wanted a doctor or a lawyer. The military was the, furthest thing from her mind. You know, unfortunately, I put it through a lot of shit, but I mean, it just, I think there's a gene because I can't remember a time where I wasn't fascinated, interested in the military. And now that I'm on the back end of everything, man, it was the greatest life ever. It was a gift to me, you know, and people look at me like I'm crazy, you know, because I've been in two wars. I got cancer because of my military service. I'm very confident about, you know, but I'm like, it was a gift, man. It was an absolute gift. And I, I do think that it has to do with how, you know, people just, there's a gene that says, I got to do this. I got to serve. I got to be, a, you know, whether it's the military, whether it's first responder, whether it's this, where you just, I want to do something yeah. different and bigger and, 
and you know, and and you understand what I'm talking about, but so oh, many yeah. people, especially in some of the things I'm involved with now, where people really are are really different, um, they don't get that. I'm, I'm not saying that in a pejorative or a bad way. Nope. It's just they don't get the why would you do all this stuff? And because it's the greatest job in the world, you know what I mean? <laughs> but to them, it's like you're out of your mind. You know, right. I have friends who run into buildings, burning buildings. You know, I have lots of firefighter friends, FDNY out here in Vegas. My one of my best friends was a firefighter in Texas. We grew up together, he married a girl from Texas, or spent 30 years as a firefighter out there. I mean, you know, he's jumped out of third story windows to not burn to death. And he thinks it was the greatest job he ever had. You know what I mean? And I'm like, you're fucking crazy. You know, right? that's just, that's it. You know? God, I love what we do. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I still fly EMS, you know, I fly air ambulance helicopters. It's not as exciting, but I still like it. And, and honestly, I don't ever want to get a real job. You know, people are like, why are you still flying? You know, da, da, da. And I'm like, because I don't want to work. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't oh my God. feel like I'm going to work. That's you awesome. Know? You know, I tell people now, like when I get in the back of the helicopter and we do we do that little power check, you know, pull off the ground about five feet, doing all your checks. And then they just rip the power in, drop the nose and just take off. Ah, I love it. It totally is. And those that don't fly, I'm sorry you don't ever have to experience you know, that because I mean, it's amazing. I mean, my picture on my uh on my screensaver is is a is a picture of you know a hawk, you know, nose down, taking off, PJs hanging out with their legs hanging out, you know, and the gunner on the thing, and it's it's down. And I'm like, it, it was yeah, I mean, there's so many days where I would be in Iraq or Afghanistan and and even after some pretty bad stuff. And I go, I, I don't know, this is where I'm supposed to be, man. And I can't believe I get paid for this. And, and there's no place I'd rather be, you know, and I, I feel bad because that was, you know, I had a family and this and that, and, and, and they ended up taking a little bit of second fiddle to all this, but yeah, I mean, I, I can, I have distinct memories and moments where I was sort of in the heat of things. And I'm like, this is where I'm, there's no place on earth I'd rather be, rather be right now. It seems crazy even to me looking back on it, but it's yeah. true. You know, yeah. and I'm sure you felt that way. You know, I can only imagine you being out on some dark and stormy night about ready to go in the water and going, this is the greatest job in the world. And again, to a candidate, I'd be like, no, nah, I'm not jumping in that water. But, you know, it's what you do. And it, it, it is what it is, man. You know, and it's. Yeah. It, you man, know, I love it. I like I said, man, I, I've always been in awe of the Coasties. I admit it. I'm not saying that to, to blow smoke up your ass. It's just like I, like I said, you guys go out on weather where I'm like, I don't know if I drive to the store to get a carton of milk in this weather. And these guys are about to roll out 300 miles out to sea. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and uh, you know, and, I, and this is before the Guardian, before any of this stuff. I knew what you guys did. I went to flight school with a bunch of Coastie pilots. You know, I mean... And, you know, I have guys talk to me about flying in Kodiak, doing instrument approach with like 40 degrees nose, you know, kick the nose out just to stay on center line, go, you know, and I'm just like, nah, you know, <laughs> I got a few friends who've flown in Kodiak and I guess that's the most, one of the more challenging Coast Guard air stations, you know, and they're just like, I loved it. I loved it up there. And I'm like, I don't oh, know. I had a blast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. See, I, I'm, I don't, I'm like, I don't know, man. That water's cold. <laughs> I just 
I, like I said, I was a naval aviator. I remember those nights flying over the ocean trying to find a boat going, I'm going to end up in the North Atlantic in this poopy suit. They're never going to find me. And this is how it's going to end. You know, for Mrs. Dorellis's little boy, you know, oh. and I'm, I'm desperately trying to find a boat, trying to get that, you know, that tack and lock on and radio contact and watching the gas just goes, you know, and yeah. just, like, this is how it's going to end, bro. And, and so, you know, I, I don't miss those days. I can't lie. Or those nights sometimes. Yes. Dude, I'm with you. So I got to tell you, man, I, I have loved everything you've said so far, but there's one thing that I might have to disagree with you with. And you said you had an unremarkable career. I don't know if I'd agree with that. And I only say that because, well, do you know why? Because I'm going to get into an award that you earned and I get to read it and we get to hear a little backstory about it, which I'm, I'm really excited about. In addition to that, you know, I, I saw some of the pictures you sent and you've got five air medals sitting on your chest. You've been through some stuff. I, I get it. And I appreciate you being humble. I see you shaking your head right now. You're like, no, 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 no. I, it wasn't anything. I agree. I agree. You know where my, my, my awards are in a box in the garage. Mine are with you. Too. I got to hang on. I mean, I want, I don't even have a shadow box for my retirement. I ended up making <laughs> my own here now, 10 years after, but yeah, all my stuff's in a box. I have them on a computer. If I need to send them to somebody, you know, dealing with the VA or whatever, but I, I haven't made my I love me wall yet. And it's tougher now. I just recently got divorced. So I'm in a one bedroom apartment now. So I'm not, uh, so I don't have the, I love, so when I get a new house, eventually I think I'll probably make an I love me wall right before I croak. You know what I mean? Because I haven't had one in these years, but we'll, we'll probably make one. Well, here's what I'd like to do with it, Ryogi, is I'd like to read this award uh, and we can go over this in particular incident and, and rescue that you, uh, that you guys launched out to you and your crew. Again, I, I got to give credit to full everybody that's on board that aircraft and, and everybody that went into the scene, but I get to talk to you right now about your experience there. So, um, and then from there, buddy, a, any rescues that you have after that, that stand out to you, man, I, I, you know, I love hearing them. So, but let's, let's get into this one first. Cause it's pretty awesome. So distinguished flying cross awarded for actions during the global war on terror service air force. Battalion 66 Expeditionary Rescue Squadron. General Orders, Headquarters, U U.S. Central Command Air Force. Special Orders, G334, August 21, 2002. Citation. The President of the United States, authorized by Act of Congress, July 2nd, 1926, takes pleasure in presenting the Distinguished Flying Cross with Combat V, standing for Valor, to Captain Yonel Jose Dorellas, United States Air Force, for heroism while participating in aerial flight as mission co-pilot 66 Expeditionary Rescue Squadron near Paktia Province, Afghanistan, on 3 March 2002. On that date, Captain Dorellas launched for a combat rescue mission from an alert status at a forward area rearming and refueling point. His skill and systems knowledge were instrumental in getting the aircraft airborne in eight minutes from a 30-minute alert posture. Prior to launching, Captain Dorellis had already planned routing through the enemy-held territory and extremely mountainous terrain of eastern Afghanistan near the Pakistan border. Once launched, he navigated the flight 
of two HH-60 Pave Hawk helicopters at less than 100 feet above the ground level with only starlight for illumination using night vision goggles for the aircraft's forward-looking infrared system. Captain Durellis instantly redirected the flight path when he realized they received anti-aircraft artillery fire. His ability to quickly, accurately pass the information enabled the, the formation to proceed directly to the landing zone with no gap in the close air support coverage of the troops in contact on the ground. As the aircraft came under attack by enemy, enemy mortars, small arms fire, and rocket-propelled grenades in the tight-altitude landing zone, his calm demeanor and visual scan for threats facilitated the aircraft's commander's call for fire. His crew-coordinated calls were critical to getting the aircraft out of the landing zone at maximum available power near maximum gross weight. Captain Durellis had incredible situational and threat awareness as Gecko 11 entered a cover pattern over Gecko 12, who was still in the landing zone. Upon departure, he accurately navigated the flight back through enemy territory to return three wounded troops to surgical care, resulting in three lives saved. The outstanding heroism and selfless devotion and duty displayed by Captain Durellis reflected great credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. Yogi! Wow, man. Dude, that's, that's, wow. Like, I don't have that in any of my awards, and I haven't read too many of those. Well. Wow, man. Dude, you're a badass. I, I got to say a few things to put this in a little bit of perspective. Again, this, this was during Operation Anaconda, and um, it was the beginning of the war, and it was one of our early Air Force missions. We really weren't involved in the planning Operation Anaconda. We actually, uh, we're sitting around uh, doing nothing when things started to go south and somebody realized, oh, wait, we have these Air Force guys here, right? And they're supposed to be really cool with PJs and things and let's see if they'll do it. And so they got <laughs> us involved. And so we moved up to that, that FARP and we're on alert there waiting. And um, there had been a mission the previous night where our guys, uh, I wasn't on that, had done a, something very similar. And then once they realized that they could do that, they said, well, let's keep these guys around so they can keep doing that because things really weren't going well. I mean, if you look at the history of Anaconda, initially we're sort of getting our ass handed to us a little bit. And, um, and uh, so, you know, that's one. So what happened and the award I was given, frankly, as we get further into, uh, you know, the global war on terrorism, OEF, IEF, that sort of thing, the kind of stuff that happened that night was being done daily by our guys and the Army medevac guys and, and all that. So, yeah, I got an award, but I think my timing was right because, the, the, you know, guys were doing that, that, that stuff and, and exceptionally more. I have a good friend who's no longer with us who got two DFCs in a week for things. Wow. He did. So, I mean, um, uh, so, you know, and I was the co-pilot and my, uh, pilot, Tom Cahill also, unfortunately, no longer with us, um, was really doing some good work that, that night. And, and, um, you know, he, he, he was certainly instrumental in our being successful as well as, you know, the work from the other crews and, and the, the enlisted air crew guys, our gunners, flight engineers, the PJs who get out of the aircraft in the middle of some crazy shit to go get the wounded. So, you know, uh, 
I got I got to emphasize that this was a group effort. There were 12 people involved in this rescue mission. I just happened to be the co-pilot on one aircraft. So, you know, I, I, I got to emphasize that. And I got to emphasize that, you know, the heroism displayed by everybody that night, not myself, but the other folks was um, displayed daily for the next 10, 20 years, you know, and I, I, I so I can't take too much credit, but it was a, cra it was a crazy mission. Um, again, I, I like to use the term fog of war. It was a lot of unknowns. We were sitting at the FARP. We'd been there all day. The, this uh, Operation Anaconda was going on and, um, you know, we're getting reports. All these Apaches were showing up at the FARP shot to shit, right? And you're just like... <laughs> You're just like looking at these, the premier gunship in the U.S. inventory, and they're all coming limping in, just basically, you know, uh, getting shot to shit. And, and I'm seeing bullet holes, and I'm just like thinking to myself, man, just imagine what that would do to me, you know. And and I, and I was getting a little worked up, you know. I was like, this is no joke, you know. I'm I'm really here now, you know. And um, they there was a there were some wounded folks. We'd heard about it. The army couldn't get in there to get them out. They got shot off the LZ a bunch of times. And we were actually getting ready to go back to Kandahar because the FARP was up a little closer to Bagram and the, the whale back and, and, and where that whole battle was going on, about a two-hour flight from Kandahar where we were at. And um, we're getting ready to go back to Kandahar and they come over the radio and they ask us basically, no one can get these wounded guys out. Will you guys give it a shot? So we all look at each other. My flight lead goes, you want to, you know, what do you think? I'm like, let's do it. Consults with the co-pot. So we shut down, we brief it up. This is a no shit moment. Flight lead, Tom calls us around. We're all standing there half circle. The other 11 of us, he goes, look guys. He goes, I'm just being honest. If we go do this, there's a good chance we're all going to get fucked up. Does anybody have a problem with that? Right? Those were wow. exact words. Right. It's like, Dude, you just gave me chills, bro. I'm, I'm actually thinking to myself, I actually have a big problem with that. Right. But, but nobody else is saying anything. And a matter of fact, one of the PJs who's still one of my close friends, uh, call sign scarecrow, Robert Roberts, who, uh, has this great business preparing guys for special forces selections. He gets people to pay him so he can just beat them down and get them ready for rescue swimmer, uh, buds, all the other special ops selections. So anyway, he goes, fuck no, I don't have a problem with it. So now I'm just like, it's peer pressure. Everybody's like, you're a brave guy. I'm like, I'm not really brave. It's just peer pressure. You can't be the one guy to go, um, I don't really want to go. I'm a little nervous. So we just get in the aircraft. We go out there. Now, for us, we had a very odd sort of command structure, there was this combined air operations center, which was in Saudi Arabia at the time. It, it subsequently moved to Qatar about a year or two later. But so we don't have this like local launch authority. We have to get launch authority from this leadership a thousand miles away, right? Yeah. They finally give us the launch authority. And then they're trying to feed us information. But all they're doing is feeding us information that we've been telling them based on our observations right because it, it you know it kind of filters through three or four different folks and then they they shoot it back to you on the radio or people are trying to guide us and tell us what to do from a thousand miles away flight leads getting frustrated 
the other, you know, the other crews, we're just like, man, these people are fucking idiots. You know, we're just going to, you know, finally, we're just like, whatever. We're just going to get to the objective area and we're going to do the best we can. And we're, again, we're being, there's a JTAC talking to us. We think he's co-located with the unit in question. We don't find out till later that he's not. He's just on the radio with them. So it's just a really confusing, and it was a dark, a dark and a three feet up a cow's ass night. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. you know, the goggles are barely working. We're in the mountains. It's, you know, I'm trying to, you know, navigate us to what are known enemy positions, but there's a big fight going on. The 10th Mountain Division is, and the 101st guys are fighting. So, you know, there's lots of tracers going back and forth. You know, we, we have some CNC aircraft up there. There's an AC-130 aircraft with us, thankfully. And, um, and so it's just really confusing and trying to find these guys and get to them. We landed in three different LZs before we found them. We got mortared in one LZ, literally mortared, which is like, I'm in a helicopter. They're mortaring me. This is crazy. You know, I'm seeing tracers come at me. My first thought, because that was my first time in combat. I'm like, why are these guys shooting at me? Do I owe them money? You know, I, I like you take it kind of personal. You know, you, you take it kind of personal for a second. You know, like they're re- it's like you they were trying to you know. And um, then we landed in another LZ. Then we landed in the raw. Then we landed in the LZ, and these three army guys get on. We think it's our wounded, and the PJs in the back going, "Hey, sir, none of these guys are wounded, right?" So I'm like, "Well, they got to go. You got to get them off the aircraft." So now we're in that apocalypse now moment. I, you remember the scene apocalypse now where the guys in the helicopter going, I'm not going, I'm not going to have to drag yeah. them off. Well, my PJs have to man, manhandle these three, you know, private snuffies off the aircraft because they're not wounded. They just think we're there to exfil, right? So we have to kind of manhandle these guys off the aircraft, take off. We finally find the right LZ. Uh, the We see the buzzsaw, which was really hard because at the time, everybody had those little, like little lights that guys were hanging from their zippers and stuff, and it, yeah. it was really, really bad. So, the real quick, is- just just to explain to everybody what a buzz saw is. So, uh, it, we, yeah, have, we have a way- is, uh, a chem light attached to yep. a string. You just yep. swing it around in a circle, right? Yep. Yeah, and I'm it sorry. creates a circle in right. like in the air, and you know, you for those that have been to nightclubs. Yeah, I've no yeah. other. It's it's a it, you know it's a, a signaling means that's very yeah. effective in a especially a dark night. Yeah. So the the LZ is up at ten thousand plus feet, right? We realize we can't get in there. We have to dump fuel in the middle of a firefight on our own guys, and we're not super high, so I don't know if it dissipated all the way before it landed on in the middle of this firefight, and then we finally and. and let me go back and I apologize. So we also were one of the first crews to carry whole blood, right? So the oh, nice. they had whole blood. So, um, and only one aircraft had it. So we had to coordinate for the aircraft with the whole blood to get in there. So the wounded guys can get on that aircraft and they can work on the most seriously wounded. And then we would get that. So it took a couple of infills to get everybody out. We, we got everybody out. Um, and we beat feedback to the FARP. I think we landed with eight minutes of gas, if I'm not. Holy so, you know, Because we stayed way past bingo. Like, we hit our bingo, and I do remember sort of him going, guys, we're past bingo. What do you want to do? And all of us, 
you know, said, fuck this, let's stay and find these guys. You know, every, everybody, you know what yeah. I mean? So, you know, uh, you know, it's just a testament to the kind of people I got to serve with. No one thought twice about, we, we're not going to leave, you know, that mindset, we're not leaving without these guys. And, you know, we'd already been shot at, we'd already been mortared, we'd already, you know, there's lots of reasons to go, hey, this is kind of AFU, maybe we should leave, and we didn't. And, I, I, you know, that's the part I'm proud of, you know, and, and uh, again, we got back and it was successful. It was just, it was very confusing, you know, and again, I, I, I don't think the enemy was the hardest part. I'm not trying to be falsely brave or whatever. The confusion, the fog of war aspect of it was much more challenging than the actual enemy. And again, you know, and I'll say this, you know, and this is kind of how I view my career in general. I don't think I'm a brave guy, but I wanted to know I wasn't a coward. And the fact that I wasn't a coward is something that makes me proud and happy. Now, the people I served with were exceptionally brave. You know, I, I just think half these knuckleheads who got in a helicopter with me and trusted me to not kill them on a regular training mission are brave. You know, and then they got in helicopters with me without hesitation in combat, in really challenging environments with idiots trying to kill us. And they still got in a helicopter with me every day. And, and they knew the kind of knucklehead I was. You know, I have the maturity of a 12. I'm 61, and I think I'm a 12-year-old, you know. And so these guys got in it. So they, they were incredibly brave. I was just lucky to be there, you know. And, and it worked out. It was a great mission. The best part about it, everything. A week later, we find out we're up in Uzbekistan. And we find out that me and the other pilot, are up for our check rides, right? And they're trying to figure out a way to give us our yearly check ride, do some training. And so I go to the commander joking. I said, sir, isn't a check ride the ability to conduct a combat rescue mission under the most challenging conditions in a two-ship dark night formation flight? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, didn't we kind of do that the other night? And he goes... <laughs> But he, my commander, Colonel DePaulo, greatest guy, goes, you know what? You're right. He goes, I'll fill out a Form 8, which is the, uh, you know, check ride paperwork on both you guys. Yeah. I'll send it back to Nellis and Stan Aval sign it. And he did. So that mission also counted as my yearly check ride for me and my pilot, Tom Cahill. Because, and I was just joking. I was like, hey, sir, but isn't this, you know, and I figured, <laughs> yeah, but I got to give you a check ride. He goes, no, you know what? You're right. And he did it. And to his credit, that worked. I know the Stanaval guys probably were a little upset back at home, but you know he's the commander and he did it. He signed the form eight, and um, we 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 passed our check ride. We lived. We got the survivors. We also passed our check ride. So, oh my that was, gosh, that was that one mission. That was one mission. Oh my gosh, Yogi, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I haven't done anything like that, so you got me. Don't please, man. You jump in the water in no. ridiculous seas when it's freezing cold, and you fly in weather that every other aircraft in the United States is like, fuck you, I'm not going. Okay, so don't minimize what you guys do, because believe me, um, you know, I know our PJs go work with you swimmers all the time to do the cold weather stuff and this and that. I mean – you know, and I know what they go through and they think you guys are the heat. So, I mean, uh, don't minimize what you guys do. And I know what it takes to be, I, I, I have a friend who's a Navy rescue swimmer. I know what it takes. It's, it's not, 
it's not a can it's not for candy asses let's put it that way well thank so, you I mean, thank you uh you know and and so like i said the coast guard may not be combat focused but i can tell you a lot of grizzled combat veterans who would never get in a helicopter and go fly in the weather you guys go flying and i'm talking about some hard mfs you know yeah. and they're just be uh, like nope nope <laughs> staying at home on the couch drinking a beer peace out have fun you know, My I hope gosh. those guys make it. Yeah. You know, and um and well thank so you. I but I don't want to take away from you either because I mean you guys what you guys do is is unreal and you know like, the greatest job it's in awesome. the DOD, man. It is yeah. the greatest mission and job in the DOD bar none. And I'm very thankful and fortunate I got to be part of it, man. You know, combat's combat rescue has a great legacy from Vietnam that you gotta live up yeah. to. It's the fighting part of the Air Force. So when everybody else is making fun of the Chair Force, I don't have to feel embarrassed because I know. What, <laughs> and, uh, what do you mean, Chair Force? <laughs> and, uh, you know, look, I get it. You know, the Air Force is an organization that, and I'm being generous, if 15% of the Air Force ever hears a shot fired in anger, that's probably generous just because of the way the organization is structured. But the, the, you know, but the people who do fly the airplanes that go in harm's way are really some incredible people, as are the people who take care of those aircraft. And, and it's a great organization. I'm not going to lie. The life was easy. I mean, I love the fact that I could fly combat, come home and go to the green bean, get a cappuccino, and then we'd be back <laughs> in our little hoops watching, you know, the latest episode of The Shield or something, you know, but um so I, I, I have no complaints having seen the other side, having lived in the mud, having done all that. I have no complaints. I like the idea of like, let me go over the fence, scare myself, do this mission and come back and be able to go to the gym, have a nice meal, you know, do all that. So I'm, I'm not complaining, but, you know, I, I was part of the fight in the Air Force and that, that gives me a lot of pride. You know, I, I take a lot of pride in that. As it should, as it should, because this was not your only mission that you had to go in and rescue a couple of guys. Well, listen, those air medals you're talking about, the Air Force gave those out every 20 sorties in combat. So it's not like every mission. I've had some good missions. And honestly, another one of my greatest, coolest missions was a non-combat one going out to get a guy about five, six hundred miles off this out to sea because the Jayhawks couldn't get there. The Coast Guard turned it over to the air. Air. I was doing some training with the uh, Air Guard up at Moffett Field in California. I was supposed to do some training. And they came to me and go, do you want to do the training? Or do you want to go on this rescue mission? I was a new co-pilot. I was like, of course I want to go on this rescue mission, right? And um, it was just a little too far for the Jayhawks, right? And we had the 130. So we, we went out there. I think we refueled two times on the way out there. It was crazy because, like I said, it, uh, I it, refueled in flight on your way yeah, up. Refueled in flight off. All right. So again, for those that don't know, so the H sixty on the Jayhawk side for the Coast Guard, the only way we can refuel in flight is if we have a hose that comes up from a ship and then they're throwing it in there. Yes. Yeah, oh my I've, gosh. I've done hyper. Yeah. So in the Navy. Now, yeah. Well, you guys have an extended. I'm going to call it a boom, but it's, it's a, a fuel refueling port. Probe. It's a yeah. Refueling so, but it sticks out way in front of the nose of the aircraft. So you can yeah. literally come up behind the tanker in the air, connect, and now you're refueling in flight on your way right. out. It's a, it's beautiful. So That's anyway. an awesome system. You know, um, probably won't be a bad idea for the Coast Guard to invest in that, considering what you do and buying a couple of HC-130s with that capability. I think that would 
you know, that would increase. I wonder it. if we could borrow some from the Air Force. Uh, you know what? Maybe you know, what I, we're, you know, we're we're talking good stuff right now. I'm just throwing this out there. Let's go, Coast Guard. You know, how, on, you know how procurement works, though, right? I mean, <laughs> money, it's funds. But the reality is the aircraft are there. It, it can easily be done if me and you figured ran the we're kings of the hill. But it's Congress, it's leadership. Oh, it's yeah. Where, where the, the leadership of the Coast Guard want funds to go and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is it would be an amazing enhancer for the Coast Guard and it would seem like a natural thing to do. And the reason, you know, it's beyond me why the Coast Guard doesn't do it. But anyway, digress. So we, I think we refueled about two times. I remember not seeing one ship the whole flight out to this, it, there was a, it was a container ship. The crewman had sepsis. So we went out to get him off the ship. The ship was big enough to where we actually were able to land on the ship, which was cool. Uh, then the PJs did their thing and stabilized them. He had really bad sepsis. He was really in bad shape. And um, we got him and flew him back to Stanford Medical Center, which arguably one of the best hospitals in the world. So not a bad deal for him as an injured, you know, seaman off, uh, off a uh, freighter. But uh, like I said, I, I, that was really cool. It was a real challenging mission. I was really still pretty new to the Air Force, and it was really cool. I wasn't as, you know, the, the over-the-ocean stuff didn't – they thought it would freak me out because a lot of, you know – and I was like, well, I was a Navy pilot. I mean, we used to take off. Well, you've been – you know when you take off from the ship – like in, and I don't know how they if they do it in the Coast Guard, but when you take off from a ship in the Navy, they give you bearing and distance to nearest land, right? So you take off and they go, Roger, nearest land, 035 for 1,237 miles. That means nothing to me. You know what I mean? I'm not going to make that. I got to get back to the ship, you know? And, and um, you know, why I'm proud of being a naval aviator is just because of that, because the ship is the only game in town. And as you know, ships have pitch and roll limits for flight ops and yada, yada, yada. Well, it doesn't matter if that's the only game in town and it's out of pitch and roll limits. Too bad, so sad, you better land on it. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and yeah. so, so those were the challenges that I liked about being a naval aviator and why I'm really proud to have been a naval aviator. You know, and, and, um, and uh, but um, there's stuff about all the services that I really liked, you know, that have that have helped me a lot. You know, the Marine Corps instilled in me amazing principles and values that have guided me. It made, took me from being a very selfish, self-centered. I'm still, I think you gotta be a little selfish to do this kind of work to be frankly, but, but I mean, I was really a selfish spoiled kid and they just beat it out of me literally in some cases. And I'm very thankful for that. And so the leadership principles, the values that were instilled in me in the Marine Corps, have helped me succeed to a certain extent in the other services. I, you know, the army just gave me the opportunity to keep flying when I was in a mental place where I really missed it, you know, and, and, and the, you know, and the, the Navy just allowed me to become a Naval aviator, which I, I believe is, you know, one of the best aviators out there, guys will argue and, and haven't flown in three branches of the military, you know, there's things all of them do well, but um, you know, I, I, I think earning those gold wings is, is, is about the most challenging. And, um, you know, the Air Force just allowed me to get involved with this incredible mission of rescue, combat search and rescue, where I was able to rescue both civilians and military personnel and be the guy that, you know, saved an, a, 
a number of lives. And, you know, again, it's cliche, but I don't know, maybe somebody I saved, they'll do something great for the world. Their kid might be president or cancer, yeah. whatever. And just be able to get those brothers and sisters that are in harm's way home. You know, yeah. you're the last hope for, you know, being the only hope for this person to get out and get their lives saved and getting them there is, is probably the most gratifying thing you can do. You know, so to be able to know that, you know, myself and through the work of the people I was lucky enough to serve with and fly with, that I've been able to get people back home to their families. Yeah, it's been super rewarding. You know, it's, it's been like I told you, you know, and early my, my military career, if I sum it up succinctly, was a gift. I consider it a gift and a privilege. That cliche term, honor and a privilege, was absolutely an honor and privilege to wear the uniform or several uniforms in my case and uh, serve this country in difficult times. You know, I love it. And I'm, I'm really thankful I've been able to do it. Yogi, dang, man, that's awesome. Well said, sir. Well said. Now, right now, I, let me actually back up a little bit because you know you did a lot of missions while you were overseas and stuff. I will leave it up to you if you want to share any more that stand out to you. Just going in to grab guys and girls, and I, I mean, it's up yeah, to you. You know, a lot of the ones were like where funny stuff happened. You know, like we went in to pick up some guys, PJs, exfil some PJs. We ripped the flare off the bottom of the aircraft. <laughs> You know, and you know, and hey, the maintenance guy. gets really mad at you for that, by the way. Right? <laughs> maintenance oh, yeah, gets really no. mad. Well, see, what's funny is so we're working our parent organization as a fighter, right? So now you have this mishap, even though it's in combat. So now this Air Force fighter pilot comes and he's like, How does this happen? And we're like, Man, this is the cost of doing business. And he's like, What? And I'm like, you put the flare on the bottom of an aircraft with compressible struts, right? We're landing in all these, you know, at this point, we actually landed in a plowed field. We just didn't see it till the last second because it was so dark. You, you know, we landed <laughs> perpendicular to the furrows. So, you know, the struts compressed, the, the flare's only seven inches, eight inches off the ground to begin with. The struts compressed, just rips it off the bottom. And we're kind of cavalier about it. And then I go over to the 160th guys who are right next door, right? And I tell this colonel, hang on, I'll be right back. So I go over there. I find this crusty old W-4. I'm like, hey, chief. I said, do you guys rip your flares off the bottom of the aircraft? when you? He goes, we do that shit all the time. But, of course, they never get in trouble for it because they're so calm. And, you know, they just – but he's like, yeah, we do it all the time. These idiots put it on the bottom. I'm like, thanks, chief. That's all I wanted to know. I go back and say, sir, they do the same thing across the street. I said, this is the cost of doing business. My boss is saying the same thing. This guy's like, these are multi-million dollar aircraft. And that, because you know, a fighter, if they, you know, if there's fought on the runway, they close the runway, right? They, you know, blah, blah, blah. And rightfully so, because you know, a piece of cardboard will, will destroy a jet edge, you know. So, but it was just, you know, things like that. Um, you know, <laughs> just uh, you know. They kind of, I look, 20 some odd years later, 15, the stuff does sort of run together. But, you know, it's yeah. just a lot of dark nights doing stuff that you just sit there and go, I can't believe I'm doing this. And you do it and you're doing stuff that you're really not supposed to be pulling off. And you just pull it off because you're just with these amazing people and there's people who need help. And um, 
like here's a memorable mission. It's not really a combat mission. We're in Iraq. Um, one of the things, uh, let me give you a little background. We used to get these packages, any service member packages, right? And, uh, you know, you'd have everything, food, snacks, this, and we had our own compound. So you just start to build this stuff up. You could, we had piles of socks. We had piles of, of pens and just things people would send. And it just, it just magazine, just anything you can imagine because people just sent any service member junk, right? And then the news would say service members need socks or they need this or wool hats or what. So we had everything. Well, one day we got about 15 boxes of Otis Spunkermeyer muffins, right? And just, we were sick of, right? Because, you know, so my flight lead's cousin is a Marine Lieutenant platoon commander and his platoon is guarding the perimeter of Al-Assad Air Base, where the Marines were, which is way out in Western Iraq. So we go to our commander and say, hey, let us do a training mission for a time on target, you know, uh, you know, plus or minus 30 seconds on target. We'll kick these boxes of muffins out to these Marines and we'll come back. It'll be good training. We'll get some shit to these Marines who are out there living in the, you know, living in the shit. And, you know, it's Chuck's cousin and da da da. So my boss goes for it. So we literally, we plan, we execute this mission. We fly low level, <laughs> avoiding the enemy, blah, blah, blah. And we, we get over these guys. We come to a hover. We kick a bunch of boxes of these muffins out, right? You know, yep. the Marines are like, what? We're throwing all our Maxim magazines in there. And, you know, <laughs> you know, Victoria's Secret, because general order number one, you couldn't have any real magazines, even though, you know, like my wife used to send me tequila in a Listerine bottle. You know, we had guys do shit like that just because you couldn't have any of that. But we had all our little contraband that we put in there for them and we're kicking this out and we just roll back, you know, and, you know, uh, the, the lieutenant gets in touch with my buddy Chuck, who was the flight lead. His guys loved it. It was great. You know, they, they, you know, thanks. It was awesome. And, you know, you feel like you did some good because yeah. you always did stuff like that because you fly over these fobs where these army or, or marine um, troops were. And you're just like, look how these guys are living. You know, a lot of us had been ex-army or marines, so we kind of knew. And so we'd always like dump stuff out on them, you know, extra stuff, things, because you just we lived really good. You know, yeah. plus these guys are, you know, on the two way shooting range every night, you know, and. And so you just, you know, you love them and you feel for them and, you know, we do whatever we could, but that was fun. Like that was just fun planning and executing that. And just, you know, you felt really good about it. And it wasn't a come. I mean, we got really good training out of it. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, Oh yeah. It, there was just a lot of cool things. A lot. It's not even combat related, like just taking the helicopters and going to another base. Cause they had good apple pies up there. And that <laughs> you could get a pie, box them up and bring them back to the yeah. base, you know, for everybody. It's, those are the things that I remember more. The combat stuff, you went out, you did it. Uh, another more related combat story. We're coming back into to Balad Air Base and we, we, there was an Apache in front of us, right? And as it comes over the fence, we see a couple of tracers come up that, right? So we call him and say, hey man, these guys just shot it. You're thinking he's going to turn around and we'll let him, we'll get to see him shooting some shit up. Right. And he's like, God damn it. I'm Winchester and I'm, I'm bingo fuel and I got to go to the FARP and he's all mad and stuff. And I'm like, we're like, okay. 
Well, you go rearm and we'll go over there and see if they can get them to shoot at us. And if he shoots at us, we'll stay on the radio with you and we'll, you know, we'll mark it. You can come back and kill everybody, you know, and it's just stupid stuff like that. Like where you're purposely going to see if someone will shoot you. Right. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, and, um, you know, looking back on that, how crazy it was, but those are the memories. Honestly, if I'm honest, you know, there was a lot of, you know, I lost some friends and, and you lose right. friends in combat and, and all that. And, those are horrible. And, and unfortunately, I've lost a lot of friends post-combat. But I think most of us look back and laugh. Probably the same for you. Like, you look back at all the things you laugh about, the silliness. The, you know, mm -hmm. being in war is really an absurd thing when you really sit and think about it as, you know, if you really put some intellectual energy in it. It's just absurd. It's this alternate universe. And the military as an organization sometimes absurd. And you just, I was always fighting the man, you know, I only drank the Kool-Aid 90%. There was that 10% where I was like, this is stupid. And, you know, and we tried to make it entertaining. You know, right. I, I actually once got accused by a senior guy saying, you, you think this war is for your own personal entertainment. And I was like, well, I'm here. I mean, I might as well make it fun, you know? And, and so, um, you know, but you just, the, la the laughs and the fun stuff and the little vignettes like that are really the things that, you know, uh, the combat stuff and the stuff, you know, I did what everybody else did, you know, I've never seen a guy say, no, I'm not going on a mission. I've never, no matter how bad it was, you know, I've been out there where me and my other aircraft were the only two aircraft flying in the whole country because the weather was so bad, but we had to try to get these guys to the hospital in Baghdad because these two contractors on a four wheeler got hit by a, a Bradley fighting vehicle. So needless to say, law and gross, uh. teams, they got the worst of it. Yeah. You know, trying to get them to the hospital, whether I could barely see my wing. You know, it, it, it's just, um, I, it was, you know, you, you just went and did the job, you know, and, and you know, you don't think about it, is this brave or is it? You just go out and do the job. That's your job. And there's inherent risk in the job. I knew it said combat search and rescue. I knew what I was getting into, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. like when I went in the Marine Corps, you know, I knew what I was getting into, you know, I, I got that silly cliche speech where they're like, you guys are cannon fodder. They were like, and you're going to be officers and lieutenants last about 20 minutes in combat. You're all cannon fodder. And I remember going, okay, at least you know where you stand. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Um, it was, you know, I chose the job, just like you chose to be a rescue swimmer. You know what you're getting into when you're looking out the side of that aircraft into a black ocean, you know, trying to time the, <laughs> the peak and trough of the wave so you can jump in there and not break your neck you know what you're doing you know to me it seems crazy to you it's like okay this is you know like my favorite movie the godfather one of my favorite lines this is the life we've chosen you yeah. know what i mean i mean you chose that life you said okay i'm a rescue swimmer in the united states coast guard that means i gotta jump out of this aircraft into this black ass ocean in the middle of this dark night in heavy seas i'm kind of scared but this is what I do. So to Love you, it. it's no big deal, right? But if I yeah. show a bunch of a montage of what rescue swimmers do to some average people, they're like, holy shit, look what those guys do and look how crazy they are. Look how this. And yet, even to me, I'm like, yeah, that's that's badass. I don't know. That's not for me, bro. You know, but it is what it is. So you do, you know, it's the job, you know, and that's it's the job. It, you know, and, and you just do the job to the best of your ability. Sometimes, 
They want to throw a medal your way. Great. Thanks. But you know, nobody does it for that. I'm proud of the fact that I can say I have these many lives that I know I've saved or not me personally, but me and my crew have saved. Yep. The current job is an air ambulance pilot. I don't keep track, mm-hmm. but I've been doing it for 10 years. If I look at the average times I fly and just come up with an average number, it's pretty significant. You know, people that I've, I've had a hand in helping, which is, you know, listen, I got nothing bad against killing bad guys and putting bad guys down and never bothered me or whatever. But I, I like the fact that maybe at the end of the day, if the man upstairs wants to judge me for some things that, you know, on my good list, there'll be the fact that I've saved triple digit worth of lives, you know, that's awesome. I'm proud of that, you know, and, and hopefully yeah. that'll keep me from the down elevator, you know, <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. You know, it was that's a, awesome. It's the greatest gig. You know, I get to tell stories to guys like, I like this because I, I admire what you do immensely. And I'm not Thank saying that to blow smoke, like the work you do, it's similar to mine, but I just, I look at a specifically to your field. You know, I used to be amazed how the PJs would just roll out of the helicopter in the middle of the most God awful chaos and just without question run out into it. You know what I mean? And like you, I just, it's very hard for me to imagine sitting there on the edge of the, you know, I've done it for survival training in the calm waters off the coast of Pensacola. And I was like, yeah, man, it's only 10 feet, but it seems a lot higher. You know what I mean? And and you do it and, and, you know. Uh, We're always telling you guys, just come up just a little bit more. I, yeah, just, I want I, that little more of a rush. I know, but I'm just saying like, but you know, that's in the calm waters of Pensacola Bay. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. thinking about you're doing it off the coast of Kodiak, Alaska and swimming to a rat in, in freezing weather. I'm just nah, nah. So believe me, what you do is amazing. And I, I, you know, I, my, my hat's off to you, man. Thanks, brother. To what you do. Cause that's Thanks. great stuff, man. So I got you. Totally. I, just like, I like being around similar people, you know, especially now yeah. my, I'm on the back nine of my life. I'm a grandpa now, you know, my, yeah, uh, a lot more set, sedentary. And, uh, you know, so it's nice to be able to talk to people who still get out there and do it, you know? Yep. I yep. do crazy I, stuff now. You know, I fly helicopters pretty benign. I'm an actor now. So I've, I've been, you know, since I retired, I've been studying acting. I've been lucky enough to do a few things and that's my life now. So I, you know, I don't get to do the cool guy shit anymore. You know, you'll never I love be- it. I'll never be as cool as I was, you know, <laughs> 2001. Whatever, man. 2009. Whatever. Like, those are the, I'll never be that cool again, you know? And I, well, you, I and you're flying, you're flying EMS right now as yeah. well. Yeah. So it's not like you're, you've hung it up. You're still, but it's nothing. Calls. It's point uh, a I agree. I get a helicopter going to point A to point B with a ventilated COVID patient or somebody who, listen, there's some funny shit and some of the accidents are gnarly and, the way people can hurt themselves is pretty ingenious and amazing. And, and you know, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, but it's, it's totally sad is. too. You know, it's sad. I mean, you see some, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be a little sad and, and, um, yeah. you know, but uh, yeah, it's fun. I, like I said, I mean, it allows me to keep flying. I do like to help people. So I, I, I can still feel like I'm, I'm contributing to society to some extent. And uh, I like that. And, you know, um, it's just, uh, you know, a beach working for a living, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. What can I say? We have a good time. 
Yogi, these stories have been awesome. I appreciate it. Um, before I let you go, I, I would love to get a little intake from you as far as advice you would give to other guys, especially the fact that you've been through four services. Like what, what advice, if you could sum everything up, what would you tell everybody? It's, it's, it's a lot simpler than you think. Don't quit. Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. All these challenges, right? Yeah. All, all, a lot of these things that people want to do are, um, they're challenges. They have attrition rates. You know what I mean? Yeah. Muscle swimmer school, for example, flight school, for example, officer candidate school, for example. If somebody's listening out there who wants to go to that next level and be some sort of special operator, don't quit, right? Don't quit. Don't uh, quit. You know, I pulled my arm out of my socket in OCS, right? I didn't tell anybody. It hurt like a son of a bitch, but I didn't want to get set back. I wanted to finish. Just don't quit. That's it. It's really simple. Life, life no matter what, is going to challenge you, right? And quitting is, when you're quitting, you're, you're quitting on the guy in the mirror before anybody else. You're selling yourself short. And, I'm, and again, cliche, your body can do a lot more than you think it can. Your mind can do a lot more than you think it can. And you just got to push it through. My philosophy was I'm going to keep going until I drop. I got nothing to lose, right? It's better than quitting and being on the truck, right? Which oh, yeah. used to follow us behind, right? Oh, so yeah. You know, and you, I, look, I know the rescue swimmer course is super challenging. And I think that's being generously kind. It's a tough motherfucking course with a high attrition rate. You know, I love you, I man. Mean, I, I mean, the you. PJs work with you guys and they go through a cycle course and they said this course is rough. You got all the rescue swimmers who come over to the PJ side of the house. Your course is challenging. It's no joke. Guys quit, right? And when they quit, you're like, oh, that guy was a nice guy, but fuck him. He quit, right? That's sort of how you feel. Don't quit. That's my advice. I love it. Yogi, I love it. Don't quit. Ah, man, it's so simple, so easy. Brother, I cannot thank you enough for coming on thank and sharing these stories. It's been an amazing pleasure meeting you. I enjoyed it. And yeah. uh, hopefully we can talk again. Oh, absolutely. And when I come to Vegas, man, we're, we're going to. I'm buying you're buying? Oh, I'm I'll fine. see you. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be on the next plane. What are you talking about? Let me know, brother. <laughs> brother, it's been awesome, man. I will see you in uh, in Vegas the next time I get down there, I promise. All right, Jason, nice meeting you, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. Anytime. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that SAR alarm goes off, 
Those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>